2023 was not only a return to reality, but also a return to, you know, pre-pandemic numbers. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Ben Landy. It's Thursday, December 28th. Today, I'm joined by fashion business expert Lauren Sherman for our end-of-year breakdown of all the biggest stories in the industry, from the far-fetched meltdown to Kanye's attempted comeback, the best fashion shows of 2023, and her predictions for 2024. We'll talk about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Happy Thursday, everybody. I hope you had a fantastic Christmas and uh, you've got something fun planned for New Year's. I'm Ben Landy filling in for Peter, and I am uh, delighted to have Puck's literally peerless fashion business correspondent, Lauren Sherman, on the program. Hi, Lauren. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you. It's been way too long. I'm excited to have you back here. Thank you. (laughs) Do you have any uh, New Year's resolutions? Do I have any (laughs) New Year's resolutions? It's always the same thing. Less sugar, less drinking. It lasts about a month and then I'm back to my old self. I would say uh, I would say go to the gym, but it's actually the worst possible time to start working out in New York oh, because yeah. it is finally getting cold here. Yeah, I don't have problems with that. It's the, it's the other stuff that is hard to stay away from. I, I'll <laughs> overdo anything, including exercise. Well, let's dive into it. I want to talk about your world because I feel like so much happened in the fashion industry this year. And you published so many stories. But if you had to pick, what do you think was the biggest storyline of 2023 for the business or at least like your favorite one to follow? There's so many good ones. There's been so much movement in succession stories and the industry. It's been consolidating for the last you know, 20 years, but it feels like that consolidation has accelerated. But I would say there's been a real correction, like a great fashion correction in the industry. 20 and 2021, especially for luxury, were just the end of 2020 and 2021, 2022 were for luxury in particular, just crazy years of growth. It had all, you know, the last 10, 15 years had been double digits every year also, but those years leading out of the pandemic, people weren't traveling a lot. They were spending a lot on actual physical products. Fashion brands just exploded their sales. A lot of brands were reporting 40% increase year on year, things like that. And 2023 was not only a return to reality, but also a return to, you know, pre-pandemic numbers and the lucky brands could say that they were flat from 2019 or up a little bit. But as people started to go on vacation again, they started having more plastic surgery again. They started going out to eat again. It just became, 
less and less about buying the wallet or the handbag or the pair of shoes. So it was a tough year for a lot of luxury brands. If you look at stocks like LVMH and Caring, which especially LVMH is a really, really resilient stock, they have not been the favorite this year. There are other companies that have performed really well, in particular Hermes, because they sort of one of a kind and extremely resilient, but it's shown, I think the luxury industry really thought that China was going to make up for a slowdown in the U.S. market, and that just didn't happen. So that to me is, there There were just like a lot of conclusions to stories that I've been covering for 15 or 20 years. These brands that a lot of e-commerce, online, digital-first startups that were heavily, heavily funded by venture capital and eventually private equity and eventually some of them went public. A lot of them, it was sort of just end game and there was nowhere to go. So in the last couple of weeks, we saw Farfetch got sold. It was valued two years ago at $23 billion on public markets and it got sold for, I don't even know if you could say it got sold for $500 million. It, it received a $500 million bailout bridge loan to keep it afloat. From the South Koreans, from uh, Coupang, the uh, the Amazon of South Korea, right? Yes, th- yes, exactly. And so one of the few of those Amazons of whatever country that had not invested in Farfetch previously. So they got... They got pretty lucky that they got this bailout. They can still pay their partners, things like that. And then two days later, a day later, matches fashion, which has been, there have been rumblings for the last year that this group, this British retailer group, Fraser's, might be interested in picking it up. And seven years ago, when Apex Partners, a private equity firm, when they bought the majority stake in matches, which is another e-commerce site, a competitor to Farfetch, Net-A-Porter, all of that. It was valued at a billion dollars. And I remember back then that billion-dollar valuation for, I think at the time they were doing like $250 million in annual revenue. It felt big. It felt like, are they are, are they overstepping a bit? But at the time, you know, Farfetch had raised hundreds of millions of dollars. Net-A-Porter had just been acquired by Richemont in a massive deal. And so it did feel like a billion-dollar valuation for one of these these luxury players was, was possible. And then, you know, extending further away from just pure online luxury, you also have Rent the Runway and the Real Real and Stitch Fix and all these different service providers in the fashion space that are all public right now. And, you know, some of them have pretty sound businesses in that, like, there is demand. So uh, the Real Real or Vestiaire Collective, these resale sites, people love them. People use them a lot. What they haven't been able to figure out is sort of how to make them profitable on a regular basis because the log- logistics, things like that are so expensive. Rent the one- Runway was totally, yeah. Yeah, this definitely seems like the year 2023 that the dream of the digital department store kind of melted down in some ways. Like as you were just saying, like obviously e-commerce is still a huge, huge category. It's where so many people shop now. But is, is there something just fundamentally wrong with this whole model? And, and do you think that like other private equity vultures are going to swoop in and figure out what to do with these businesses? Like could, could somebody else pick up Farfetch and um, Ux Net-A-Porter, put them back together and, and, and figure out how to make it work? I think that 
someone will try to do that, whether or not they can figure it out is another question. I would say that fundamentally it can be a sound business. It's just not as big of a business as they all were predicting it would be. Not because there isn't a huge market for luxury goods, but a lot of people buy luxury goods directly from the brands now. And the business model has changed. So 10 years ago, all of these sites, other than Farfetch, which is a marketplace like Amazon, other than Farfetch, they were all selling via the wholesale model. So they would buy products from these brands. They would mark them up two and a half times and their profit would be in that markup. And now because the brands have more leverage, a lot of times they're actually selling through these websites on consignment or concession as it's called in retail. So the brand still owns the the inventory and the multi-brand retailer like a Matches or a Net-A-Porte or a My Teresa is actually only getting a percentage of sales based on what happens instead of owning the product and getting that big margin. So the, the percentage, the margin and the profit that they're getting on each product is lower. And, and this business model is different for every store. My Teresa's more traditional wholesale model, but you look at matches fashion and at a porte and they are increasingly reliant on this commission based model. And so there just isn't as much money to be made. What it comes down to, and and this is another big thing that I remember when I met with John about Puck, you know, almost over a year ago now, the thing that I said to him was, I really care and I'm interested in brands. So whether that's Target or Hermes, I, I care about the brand. And this year being at Puck, that has been very clear to me that people care about brands and brands matter. And when you look at these online department stores, the brand is important and Farfetch never really had a brand. People mm-hmm. never really cared about it. They used Farfetch to find specific products, but it never and Farfetch was really good at search engine marketing. So if you googled Gucci loafer, Farfetch results would come up first. So they won in that way. Right, but then you never have any kind of affinity with Farfetch as a brand itself. It's just a place you go through Google. Exactly. And so Netaporte and matches and my Teresa and these other players and Saks and Neiman's and all the American department stores that have big online presences as well. They all have an affinity. And I would say Net-A-Porter out of all of them is still the most important brand, but it's not owned by a company that should own it. And so, yeah, I definitely, that's a very long winded way to say that I think the consolidation will happen, but Are they going to figure out how to do it right? The thing is, these businesses, in some cases, should be like $300 million a year businesses. And that's a great size business, but it's not a venture capital or a private equity sized business. So there's going to be, I think there will be a lot of return to reality and people say, we want to do it in the right way. And then things will start to pick up again in 2025 and all the investment will come back in and they'll go full speed ahead. And it's just a cycle that I've been through many times in this industry where you, you want to grow responsibly, you want to do it the right way. You want to be profitable and then things really, really pick up and explode. You want more investment so that you can make things grow even faster. And when that more investment comes in, very rarely 
are the businesses able to manage it properly? So there's a crash and burn and then a reset. And it's just again and again and again. Well, speaking of consolidation in the industry, obviously the, the biggest M&A deal of the year in fashion was Tapestry buying Capri for $8.5 billion. So that, that's putting together brands like Michael Kors and Coach and Jimmy Choo and a few others. What's your sort of early sense of how that's working out so far? And what are they trying to do in 2024? so crazy. I totally forgot about it for a minute. <laughs> so much stuff has, has it's the gone biggest on. M&A deal of the year, Lauren. <laughs> I know, Not that exciting. I know, but it's, it's really boring. I'm sorry to all, all people involved. <laughs> um, I think next year we'll see, I don't know if it's actually gone through yet. I think it goes through, it might go through in 2024, but I think next year we'll see whether or not tapestry can manage these brands properly. The the reason why LVMH works so well and caring works pretty well is that they are like consumer packaged goods companies. They are brand managers. They train their executives to be brand managers and they understand what they're working with. So you're, if you're running a fashion brand, you're working with all the profit comes from creativity. So you have to invest in creativity so that in the end, you generate more profit. And the issue with tapestry in particular is they have not been investing in creativity in the same way that the European conglomerates have. So whether or not they start doing that, and the interesting thing about Capri is it, it that group includes Michael Kors, Jimmy Choo, and Versace. And Versace may be definitely one of the smallest out of the whole group portfolio, but I would say it has the most potential. It's a really well-known name. It's untarnished. It doesn't have any, there isn't, it hasn't been kind of broken down in the way a lot of old luxury brands have, and it has global appeal. So if they really invest in it, it could be a giant, giant, giant business. If it was owned, I always think if Versace was owned by LVMH, what would it be right now versus what it is in in the Capri portfolio? And and Tapestry and Capri are much, they've only been around for the, like the last 10 years. So they're much younger companies compared to LVMH and Caring. But I think the real test is going to be, do they understand how to use creativity to build a big business? And in the past, both businesses have been really cost cutting, really focused on outlet. So just slashing and throwing stuff in outlet, creating cheap products specifically for outlet and having that boost their, their, their top line. So I would say that's the big question. Like, can they make these brands into exciting brands or is it sort of going to become further homogenized? Yeah, and it'll be a big test, too, of whether um, an American fashion conglomerate can really understand brand building in the same way that their European counterparts do. It'll be interesting to watch. Um, All right, Lauren, we got to go to a quick break. And when we get back, I want to ask you about your favorite Fashion Week shows of the year and uh, get a couple more 2024 predictions. Welcome back. We're still here with Lauren gabbing about the fashion industry. You went to a ton of fashion shows this year, uh, New York, Paris, Milan, 
Also, apparently, Los Angeles has a fashion week, which I um, didn't go to any I shows. Remember you, kind of, <laughs> you kind of rolled your eyes at. Uh, but I'm curious what you made of it all this year. Um, obviously, I am recording this in a sweatshirt, as you can see. I'm not the target audience for this stuff, but were there any key themes that you think will carry into next year or fashion designers you've got an eye on? Yeah, it it was really interesting to see Milan versus Paris, which those are the two big fashion weeks of each season and where all the really big brands show and are really important in terms of setting trends, but also business stories as well. And I thought Milan last season told a really amazing story of the fashion industry. And so Milan, it was sort of like a Milan versus Paris. I had an amazing time in Milan. I got to Paris and it felt much more staid and sort of standard. But but I would say that there is this, this push-pull right now between are you going to be a big consumer brand that doesn't really make pure fashion anymore? And that's fine. But are you going to be Pharrell for Louis Vuitton, for instance, which was probably the most talked about show of the year? And I thought was actually a really great show. It was really well designed and I sadly was not there for it, but it was really, really well done in terms of execution, concept, and then also the spectacle around it was was wonderful. But you know, not many brands, even at that high end, are able to achieve the same thing and get those results. And so you also have all these like tiny little designers or mid-level designers who are doing really creative stuff, but what they're doing and what these mega brands are doing, it's not the same business anymore. And so you really saw that bifurcation. There are also just a big trend that I think has trickled down to consumer culture quite a bit is this idea. There was just a piece in New York Magazine, The Year of the Girl, and and there had been Vanity Fair did something during the summer. Just this idea of like, really driven by fashion at Miu Miu in particular, which Mucha Prada designs on her own without Ralph Simmons. This idea of like really girly, almost infantized clothing that it's less gendered than it used to be. It's just about girliness and not femininity, if that makes sense. But that became like a big commercial thing, all the mini skirts. And it was really a case of seeing fashion on the runway trickle down to the street, which you don't see as much anymore. Usually fashion is taking from the street. And so that was interesting. I've, I have my own complex feelings about that whole trend. So, um, just the idea of calling it the, the girl trend is, is kind of weird to me, but that I think is told an interesting business story too. And that's what I love about fashion that you can sort of see how consumers are spending money and how, what designers are making. And, and that usually reflects what's happening in the business and also just business cultural culture in general, that is, is unique to the industry, I think. Well, the, the fashion designer that I am most obsessed with and also totally repulsed by is Kanye West. And uh, you had some uh, you had some incredible reporting on this this year um, that, that Kanye was trying to stage this comeback, that he had sort of teamed up with Dov Charney, of all people, uh, potentially some other big name shoe designers, including one who, who insisted that he would definitely was not working with Kanye West, although we have our suspicions. As far as the 2024 prediction, Lauren, I'm very curious if you think this new Yeezy shoe is actually going to come out, if it could be a success, I am very skeptical. There's a market 
for Kanye after the anti-Semitism tirades, especially in this current political environment. Um, and I also sort of doubt whether he is psychologically stable enough to run any kind of business, but I am very curious to get your take on this because it's definitely um, a topic of conversation in the fashion world. Yeah, I, I think if you rewind to when Kanye first started designing and he he had a high-end fashion line, I think it was 2011 or 2012 that he showed at Paris Fashion Week and it flopped. He's not a good designer. What Kanye is good at is hiring good designers and seeing that talent. And so he whether he hired that Balenciaga shoe designer or not, I mean, it looks like he did, but they all say it's not true. Kanye's lawyer says it's not true. The designer says it's not true. So we'll let them have that. But I think the thing about him in the U.S. market and maybe in Europe, will that sock shoe do well? I don't know. I think outside of the Western world and specifically in Asia, there's probably still a market for it. That being said, does he have the infrastructure to be able to build it out? He was able to build out an incredible shoe business because it was being built by Adidas. He was not even able to build out a good fashion business because Gap could not handle him. They they couldn't manage the relationship with him. So, you know, I've covered Dove Charney longer than I've covered Kanye in terms of fashion and Dove has his own problems similarly to Kanye, but also he does know how to run a fashion business. Whether or not he can can do it profitably or easily is another question, but he knows how the fashion business works. So will they be able to make the product? Will the product get out? I, I saw that that sock boot is on pre-order, which is a really smart way when you're first starting out to generate revenue so that you can actually produce something. So people are paying up front, even if they're paying half up front, that pays for your production. When they get it, you get the rest and that pays for more production. And it's a good way to start a business. I don't know. I mean, it's it feels like it's moving further and further into propaganda that could be considered racist or anti-Semitic. And it's not like he's backing away from that. So... I don't think it's it's going to be a nothing. I think in the U.S. it's going to be a nothing. I guess is I guess is the answer for now. But it is one of those things. Like I didn't think I'd ever have to write about him again when he had a total breakdown in October 2022. It's it's funny. Like I often think, oh, this is the last time I have to write about this person, <laughs> and then they pop up two months <laughs> no, later. No, no, no. We're we're keeping Kanye West in, in the pages of Puck. And it'll be fascinating to see what, what happens with all of this and how it's received. But um, Lauren, we've got to leave it there. I, I could talk to you forever about this stuff, but it, it was great to see you. And thanks for stopping by today. Thanks for having me, Ben. Have a happy new year. Happy new year. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.